0: Amen, amen, and isn't it so rich and so sweet to gather together as the body of Christ and to sing the gospel together? What a wonderful gift that the Lord has given to us to allow us to do this together. What we're going to do something a little bit different this morning is I want to invite my wife, Christy, up onto the platform with me, because what we had the opportunity to do a few weeks ago is we had the opportunity, thank you my friend, to go to Israel together we had the opportunity to go to the Holy Land and just see the Bible come alive. And we wanna share some of that experience with you. And one of the reasons I feel like I'm the most blessed pastor in all of the world is that our deacons and their families were so generous to pay for us to go and experience this. And I'm, I'm just so grateful that we got to see it. And what we want is we want to share with you some of the things that we got to see. Uh, the first picture I want you to see is when we were in Jerusalem against the Western Wall, uh, there were a bunch of rocks and stones that were on the ground. In fact, if you look off to your far left, this is a picture that we took. And these are rocks right there. What's the big deal? In Mark 13, Jesus told his disciples that there's coming a day in which the stones of the temple will not remain in place. Indeed, there's coming a day in which not one stone will be left upon another. Well, in 70 AD, Romans show up, they destroy uh, Jerusalem and they tear down the temple. What I got to see right there on the ground was fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus said would take place. And that just brought great encouragement to see the Word of God and the Son of God mesh together right in front of my very eyes. So what's something that you would take away from the trip?
1: One of my favorite things was being on the Sea of Galilee. And we got to go out on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And you can see here, um, you can look all the way around the, the Sea of Galilee. It's really a lake, it's not very big at all. And you can, you can see the borders of it um, from certain places where you're standing, and it was very easy to picture Jesus being up on one of these hillsides, um, delivering the Beatitudes and Sermon on the Mount, what we see in Matthew 5 through 7. Um, there was so much of Jesus's ministry that took place around the Sea of Galilee, and one of the other things that was incredible about being out there was just imagining The disciples being on a boat in the middle of that lake and just a storm rolling in and just how terrified they must have been. But then Jesus comes walking on the water and they take him into the boat and they're immediately to the other side and also, just being on the very water that Jesus walked on. Uh, it was just so incredible to be able to experience
0: that. It's so amazing to, to experience that. And these are all pictures that Christy and I I took that you're seeing up on the walls. And it was just so rich, just it, being able to see the Word of God come alive like this. The next picture I want you to see is that while we were there, we had the opportunity to go to this place right here. Now, this is a really boring picture for many of you because you're like, ah, I don't care about this. But this is an excavation site in the town of Dan. It's far north. It's on the it's bordered by Syria on one side and Lebanon on the other. What's so significant about this spot is that this excavation site, they found an inscription pointing to an actual king of Israel named David. You see, for centuries, liberals have been trying to undermine the Word of God, saying it's just a bunch of fairy tales and a bunch of stories. Well, what we are finding is that there are archaeological digs that are validating and proving that the Bible is true. There have been 15,000 archaeological digs that have proven the Bible true. Guess how many archaeological digs have disproven the Bible? Zero. It means that book in your lap is completely trustworthy in all that it contains, it has no error, no mixture of error, and you can trust every jot and tittle. You can trust every letter in your Bible because it was written by Almighty God. So I was really blessed by this site because as you can see, they're still excavating. They're still digging and finding more and more things that continually point to the truthfulness of the word of God. What's something else for you.
1: The second thing that was really significant for me was Caiaphas's house and to kind of give you a picture of what you're looking at over uh, on this side you're going to see what looks like a bunch of rubble but it's actually stairs and what you're looking at on that hillside is the Mount of Olives and if you kind of imagine going this way just a little bit that is where the Garden of Gethsemane is and then over here this is the courtyard of Caiaphas's house Caiaphas was the high priest at the time of Jesus's arrest, and so this is where Jesus uh, in this building. This is where he would have spent his last night on Earth. Um, so that's there. And the significant thing about this also is if you kind of imagine, um, like if where you're standing, kind of behind you, behind where this picture is, that is where the upper room is, where the disciples and Jesus um, had the last supper. And after that meal, it says that they went to the garden of Gethsemane and they would have walked down these very stairs right here to do that. And so as Jesus was walking down these stairs with his disciples, he could look just to his right and see the very courtyard where Peter was going to deny him three times, and he knew that he would be coming back up those stairs in just a matter of hours um, as he was arrested and he was brought to the high priest uh, to go on trial. And so for me, it was just significant thinking of those stairs and and Jesus being there and being able to look and see all of these things and know what was coming for him. And yet he walked down those stairs and he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed. And um, he walked back up those stairs to be arrested and went to be crucified for me.
0: Amen. Amen. This is the very spot where Peter... Denied Jesus three times. This is a significant place, uh, which Christy will tell you more about here in just a minute about the impact of that. The next picture I wanna show you is when um, uh, we went up on top of a mountain. It's called Mount Precipice. Now, if you're looking at this map, out to your far left is Mount Tabor. On this mountain is the possible location where Jesus was transfigured in Matthew 17, where he takes on a temporary glorified body with Moses and Elijah there, with Peter, James, and John. Off to your far right is Mount Carmel. That is where Elijah went and did battle with the prophets of Baal from 1 Kings 18. And directly behind me is the Valley of Armageddon. This is where the final battle will take place. Revelation 16 tells us of a coming day in which Jesus will come back and he will go and do battle against the Antichrist and his enemies. You and I will be there with him, but the good news is Jesus is gonna do all the fighting for us. He, All it will take is the sound of his word and the fight will be over. But if you take a good look, this is where you're going to be as a follower of Jesus. We're going to be with him. And when he returns, we're going to come back in the victory of Christ. What's also significant about this place where you're standing right now is that directly behind you is Nazareth. This is the city that Jesus grew up in. They knew Joseph, his earthly father. They knew Mary and his brothers and his sisters. They knew Jesus as a young boy, rising up as a young man, becoming a a carpenter and just looking at him and seeing him grow. This is so significant because in Luke chapter four, Jesus goes into the synagogue. He unveils the scroll to Isaiah 61 and he reads the text and says, this scripture is fulfilled in your reading and in your hearing. In essence, he's saying, I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. I am the promised Messiah that you're looking forward to. This enraged the Jews so much that they brought him here to this mountain, off to the left Mount Tabor, off to the right Mount Carmel. Out in front is the Valley of Armageddon. They, Luke 4, were about to throw Jesus off of the mountain. But again, you and I both know that his time had not yet come because he would ultimately go and die on the cross. But this is so significant because it was here that Jesus went back in the opposite direction and he said, a prophet's not without honor in his own hometown. I love this picture because it shows you just how close things are in Israel. The nation is about the size of New Jersey. The southern half of it is primarily desert, almost uninhabitable. The northern half is where the vast majority of the sites are. So everything is really within about an hour's drive of one another. And there is so many layers of history that are laid all out beneath your feet. What's one other thing that you would throw out there?
1: So one other thing that was really impactful for me was going to Tabgah. And what you are looking at right here, if you look on the very edges of the picture, you'll see a shoreline. And this is the shoreline where after his resurrection, Jesus was making breakfast for the disciples. It says that after they um, had... After Jesus had been crucified, they went back um, to their hometowns, and they started fishing. And so they were out on the Sea of Galilee, which is what you see up here. They were out there fishing, and they had caught nothing. And um, Jesus calls to them and tells them to throw their nets on the other side, and they bring in a large catch of fish. And as they're bringing that in, Jesus is there making breakfast for them. And on the shoreline is where Jesus takes Peter aside and he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And he asks him three times because Peter had denied him three times. And so this is the spot where Jesus restores Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know, Lord, that I love you. And he says, feed my lambs. And then he gives Peter the commission um, to feed the flock of God. He also tells Peter how he is going to die And then lastly, he tells Peter, follow me.
0: Amen. What I found so significant and moving in this point is it reminded me in which God said, I'm a God of second chances. Where Peter denied Jesus three three times in the moment when Jesus needed him the most. Here Jesus invites the man who denied him at his point of death and feeds him breakfast. And three times restores him back and says, now you're gonna go fish men And I just reminded me that God is a God of second chances, that no matter what you have done, no matter what's in your past, God is still a God of second chances. The gospel is still true. Grace abounds in the work and ministry of Jesus. And what a significant moment in which we see where Jesus restores Peter and God is able to restore you no matter what's in your past. The last picture I'll show you is one of my favorite spots. It's just outside of Bethlehem. It's called Shepherd's Field. What you are looking at is Boaz's field. We studied the book of Ruth together as a faith family and we talked about how Ruth, this Moabite woman, comes with her mother-in-law, Naomi, to Bethlehem. And it was here that Ruth was out in these fields where Boaz first recognizes Ruth. and It is there that they meet. Eventually they get married and they become the great grandparents of King David. We know on this side of redemptive history that the Messiah would come through the lineage of David. What's interesting is years later, Luke chapter two happened in this exact spot. For it was here, the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds who were watching their flock at night. This is where they were. So it's amazing how God connects Ruth chapters two and three to to Ruth two and three to Luke chapter two, and it's pointing forward to the king who would sit on David's throne, the future Messiah who was announced here that he had been born in Bethlehem, that God is sovereign over the big things and the small things. I was so amazed to be seeing the field of Boaz and Ruth and thinking the shepherds were right here when they saw the angel of the heavenly host filling the sky. And I just, I thought, what an amazing God who's in charge of the big things and the small things. So if you are to take away, what was your favorite part about the trip?
1: The Bible came alive. And this book that I have loved and have studied For 18 years, I finally got to see the places where it all happened. And so now when I read God's Word, I just have images in my mind of these exact locations. And so everything has just come alive.
0: Amen. so good. People have often asked me, what did you think about your experience? And the only way I can describe it is that when Christy and I first started dating, and as I'm falling in love with this woman, she would tell me stories about her upbringing. And I never had been to her hometown. And then finally, I made a hometown visit. And I met her parents, and I saw her home, and I saw where she went to school. And all of a sudden, these stories, I was able to finally see it and connect the dots. Well, a Jesus, whom I love more than anybody, and the man who I've been following since the age of 18, it was amazing to me because these life-altering truths that I've experienced in the Word, I got to go to the exact location where they took place. And I got to see the hometown of Jesus. And I got to see all of these places where all of these truths that have totally changed my life took place. And it was just so rich to finally put myself in that place. Now, as a faith family, this fall, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark together. And what was so helpful for me is that we got to go to all of the spots where the Gospel of Mark took place. So we're going to have a lot of fun digging into that truth together as a faith family. Now, Lord willing, in the years to come, we're gonna be taking groups back over there. So I wanna encourage you to start saving your pennies, but in the years to come, I wanna take groups from our church to go back so you too can experience this, so you can lay eyes on these places to help you grow in the gospel. Can I pray for us and then we'll keep going. Father, I'm so grateful that your word is true. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. I praise you, Lord, that your word is perfect in all that it contains. I thank you, God, that we can bank our entire eternity upon Jesus and what he has revealed to us through his word. So Father, I pray for our faith family that we would continue to grow in the gospel, Lord. Make us a people who are hungry for your word, thirsty for the spirit of God. Stir within us longings for more of Christ in our lives. And I pray, Lord, you would use us as temporary brief times and lives that we have here, that God, you would use us to go and tell the world the good news of Christ. So God, I thank you for what you have revealed clearly through your word. And I pray, God, it would change us and move us out for the sake of the nations and our neighbors. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. Can you all thank the Lord for bringing Christy up here with me? Thank you for doing that. So grateful to get a chance to to celebrate this trip with her together. I'm gonna show you a, a picture Uh, of what took place on August the 14th of 2004. You can notice that Christy has not changed a bit and that me, since I became senior pastor, I've lost hair and gained weight. So it's just, it's crazy how that happens. This was the happiest day of my life. This is the day in which the most beautiful woman in all the world walked down the aisle, and I wept with tears flowing down my face with my father as my best man. And I got to declare to the world and before Almighty God, I am covenanting with this woman, and we're going to be coming together two to become one. You see, marriage is good, and it's for our good, and marriage is glorious. And when Jesus is the center of marriage, he gets the glory. Unfortunately, we live in a culture that is outright confused on the topic of marriage. This week, I read an article about a man in Ireland who married his horse. I read another article this week where a woman recently married a 300-year-old pirate ghost named Jack. You see, when man is left to himself, we will concoct outlandish ideas that are outright bizarre. You see, if man created marriage, then we can define it however we want to. But since God created marriage, then he defines it. Marriage was God's idea. He is the designer and the initiator of marriage. Therefore, he gets to dictate what it is and what it is not. So how does God define marriage? God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. Marriage is not a man and a man. Marriage is not a woman and a woman. Marriage is not a man and an animal. Marriage is not a woman and a ghost. You can dress up, you can make commitments, you can eat cake, but it's not marriage. And though the world has thwarted the definition of marriage, the church of Jesus Christ must not. Unfortunately, the church throughout the ages has not always done a good job of modeling God's design for marriage through infidelity, divorce, pornography. There have been many ways in which the church's witness has been hurt. But the beauty of the gospel is that God can bring unity where there was once division. God can bring restoration to broken relationships and that the grace of Jesus is greater than all of our sin. My heart, as your pastor, is to shepherd our faith family, to model the gospel in all of our relationships, including marriage. So this morning, we're going to go back to where marriage began thousands of years ago, to the Garden of Eden. And it is there that we will discover God's blueprint for marriage. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Today we're beginning a new sermon series entitled Divine Design. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at what marriage is in light of the gospel, how the gospel applies to marriage, and then how we can practically live out the gospel in our marriage relationships. Now the word uh, Genesis, it means beginning In Genesis chapter one, we discover how the world began when God created the heavens and the earth. On each of the six days, God spoke and whatever he said came into being. Once his work was done in chapter one, verse 31, it says that God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. And yet the crowning achievement of creation was the making of man and woman. Unlike any of the animals, unlike any of the plants that had been made, Adam and Eve were image bearers. They reflected what God is like. You see, every human being, regardless of age, regardless of ability, regardless of skin color, bears the image of God. We are created by God and for his glory. We were made by a sovereign creator who made us in his image, in his likeness. And in chapter 2, Moses, the human author of Genesis, he gives us greater detail of what happened back in chapter 1, verses 26 and following when God made man. Look with me at Genesis 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. The first Adam was made out of the dust from the ground. And when God breathed into his nostrils, he became a living soul, a living being. We then see in the text, verses 8 through 14, where the Lord plants the Garden of Eden and he puts Adam in the garden with the task of exercising dominion over it. Then notice in the text the task that God gives to Adam. In chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone. And flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. We see in the text God commissioned Adam in verse 15 as a worker of the garden. God gave Adam the responsibility of working and overseeing God's creation. He was given freedom to eat from any tree. But the Lord gives one command to Adam, verse 17. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now keep in mind, Eve had not been made yet. Eve had not come into existence when God gives the command in verse 17. Thus, Adam carries the responsibility of being the spiritual leader of his family. He was to teach, he was to model, he was to protect Eve and to help her to obey this one command. Well, if you fast forward one chapter, you're gonna see that Adam doesn't do a very good job of teaching and leading and protecting Eve. But before the fall in chapter three, We see that Adam is a worker, he is a spiritual leader, and we see that he is the head over the garden. In verse 19, the Lord God brought each animal to Adam to name it. You see, naming comes from a position of authority. It comes from a position of headship. You see, one of the reasons that you did not name my five kids is because you have not been given that authority and headship. God has entrusted that to me. And one of the reasons that I'd have not named your children is because your authority and your headship over your family belongs to you. You see, naming something points to authority. It points to headship. So here in the text, we see where God calls Adam to step up and display his authority, to display his headship over the animals by naming them giraffe, zebra, Lion, pelican, elephant, tiger, wildcats. See, he is naming the animals. Some of you caught that. <laughs> Adam is fulfilling Genesis one twenty eight mandate. He's exercising dominion. He is ruling over creation. Yet Adam notices that something's amiss. Something's off. He would see male, female tiger, male, female elephant, male, female pelican. He would see these compliments, but verse 20, no helper was found corresponding to him. You see, Adam needed a compliment. He needed one who would come alongside and help him to fulfill his God-given mandate in the garden. Hear me, husbands, you cannot do it on your own. One of God's good gifts to you is your wife, and she is designed, verse 20, to be your helpmate. She is to come alongside you and to help you in your God-given responsibility of exercising dominion over your area of creation. Your wife compliments you. She makes you better. She helps fulfill your weaknesses and she turns those into strengths. And by the way, men, you have many weaknesses. You may be thinking, I don't have any weaknesses. You just found one. We need a wife who will help us in our weaknesses. Well, who says that I need a wife? The Lord. Look at verse 18. It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that something is not good. Up to this point in chapter one, after a day of creation, God would look at his work and say, it was good. It was good. It was good. But now in chapter two, the Lord says, it is not good. What's not good for the man to be alone? So, what does God do? He establishes marriage. Notice in the text God's blueprint for marriage. I want you to see first that God's blueprint for marriage consists of one man and one woman. Look at verse 21. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. You see, the Lord knows that it's not good for Adam to be alone. And since none of the animals are his complement, since none of the animals were image bearers, God puts the man to sleep and he takes one of Adam's ribs and he fashions a woman. Now, if you go back and you reread this text, like you're reading it for the very first time, you can feel the anticipation building. You're asking questions like, only Adam's in the garden? That's a problem. How's God going to fix this? How will a woman find her way into the storyline of God? Where is she going to come from? What is God going to do with this rib? Verse 22. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. What is God doing? God is making a compliment for Adam. Fourth century North African theologian St. Augustine said it like this. Woman was made from the rib of man, not from his head to be above him, not from his feet to be beneath him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him and close to his heart to be loved by him. This was God's design of taking from man, from his side, and forming, fashioning, fashioning, making a woman. Well, after the Lord made the woman, verse 22, he brought her to the man. God is orchestrating the first meeting. God is setting Adam and Eve up on their first date. Just as God brought each animal to Adam to name, he now brings to Adam his bride. Now do not miss this. God is making a bride for Adam by wounding Adam. This is pointing us to God who made a bride for Jesus by wounding Jesus. Don't miss that gospel truth. Just as God made a bride for Adam by wounding Adam, God made a bride for Jesus by wounding Jesus. Jesus was nailed to a cross and a spear wounded his side and through his shed blood, God would save a people for himself. He would win his bride by being wounded for her. The church, the bride of Christ was made because Jesus was wounded at the cross. You see, the one man and one woman relationship in the covenant of marriage is pointing to an even greater relationship. God designed marriage to picture Christ and his church. So to picture how Jesus loves and leads and provides and and protects his church, God ordains and blesses a human relationship that will look just like that. He makes a man who loves his wife and leads his wife and protects his wife and provides for his wife. God designed the one man and one woman relationship to point to an even greater gospel reality. You see, marriage pictures Christ and his bride, the church. Therefore, God's blueprint for marriage is one man and one woman. Just as Jesus is the one man, The God-man and the church is the one woman. Do you see how it's pointing to an even greater gospel reality here? We also see in the text, God's blueprint for marriage consists of number two, one wedding, one wedding. God puts Adam to sleep. God takes his rib. God fashions a woman. God, verse 22, brings her to the man. Adam wakes up. (whistles) Hubba, hubba. Verse 23. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone. And flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Yes, sir. Adam is gazing at this fine looking woman. And as he looks upon her, he says, At last, this one, this one, at last, at last, it's not an elephant. At last, it's not a tiger. At last, it's not a lion. This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The woman was taken from man, and then she is brought to him, to the man. You see, they are equal, but not the same. Don't miss that. Adam and Eve are equal, but they are not the same. That is a controversial statement in our culture today. What we see here is God fashioning this woman. He is declaring gender. He is making them the same and yet distinct and unique from one another. They are unique image bearers made by God for one another. They're both human and yet they're also simultaneously distinct from one another. Notice once again, Adam names her, verse 23. He says, This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Again, a sign of headship, a sign of authority. You see, the husband serves his wife by leading her, by protecting her, by providing for her. Adam names Eve from a position of headship. Eve is not inferior. God has assigned to her a separate and distinct role in the family and in the world. And yet, verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. With God presiding over and officiating the first wedding, God looks on with favor and blessing. Y'all, this is the pattern. This is the blueprint from Genesis 2 forward. All future marriages are to look like this, God says. The text is pointing us to this. Verse 24 speaks to an event, a moment in which a man leaves his father. He leaves his mother. He says goodbye to his primary allegiance being to his first family, and he cleaves, he bonds, he unites with his wife. In premarital counseling, I'll often tell couples that the wedding is like the 4th of July. It's a celebration of independence. You're now breaking off those previous allegiances to your families, and you are now forming a new family. You see, marriage includes, and I'll put this in your notes, receiving, leaving, and cleaving. Receiving, leaving, and cleaving. You receive your wife, verse 22 you leave your parents verse 24 and you cleave to your wife verse 24 that word for cleave in verse 24 it denotes a remaining close as skin to flesh as flesh to bone you stick to one another you you cling to one another isn't it amazing that adam went to sleep and woke up to a new bride Jesus went into a tomb for three days And when he woke up He woke up to a new bride He laid there in the grave And all of a sudden his heart started beating again Blood started pumping throughout his body His eyes opened And through God's initiative Jesus' bride, the church, would come forth Because Jesus arose from the dead, he will one day be united with his bride, with us. We will be with Christ. A future wedding is coming. Isaiah 54 verse five says, "'For your maker is your husband.'" The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. And there's coming a day when a bridegroom, Jesus, will gather his bride, and we will be united with him forever. John tells us what this is gonna look like in John nineteen Revelation nineteen. He says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. There's coming a day in which Jesus will return. He will rescue his bride. We will be with him forever. We will see him for who he is. Our joy will be full, we will have perfect union with God, and we will be with Christ forever. It is coming for those who are trusting in Jesus. You see, marriage is a big deal to God. The Bible begins with the wedding, and it ends with the wedding. And it's all revolved around Jesus, Jesus. This is why God's design and God's definition for marriage matters. It's because it's pointing to an even greater reality that is found in the gospel. It matters how we define and describe marriage because ultimately it's pointing us to a bigger story of Christ coming for his bride and one day there being a great wedding. I want you to see thirdly. God's blueprint for marriage. It consists of one flesh relationship. It's a one flesh relationship. A man leaves his father and mother, bonds with his wife, verse 24, and they become one flesh. This one flesh is a reference of two becoming one. It implies a sexual union. It's a, it's a complete oneness. A husband and wife who complement one another, they're united together, one in body and mind and in heart. It's complete intimacy and transparency between a husband and wife where they are naked, verse 25, and they feel no shame. This is God's design. It's put into an even bigger reality. You see, one of the arguments that I've heard in our culture recently is that Jesus never spoke to this. Jesus never even talked about marriage or what it's supposed to be like. Oh yes, he did. First, the entire Bible is red letter. The whole Bible is the word of Jesus. So you can trust everything in there. So where Jesus where the Bible speaks, Jesus speaks. But he also speaks specifically in his earthly ministry. In Matthew chapter 19, he said this. Haven't you read? he replied that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. He's going on record of gender. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. He's affirming a wedding. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. He's affirming biblical sexuality. God's design for sex inside the covenant of marriage. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is clear and he does not stutter. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. So, where do we go from here? As followers of Jesus in a culture, that has totally thwarted God's design and definition of marriage, how do we respond? Well, leads us to our impact point, it's this. Honor and celebrate God's blueprint for marriage. Honor and celebrate God's blueprint for marriage because ultimately marriage points to God's son. So how do we do this? I think there's, there's two ways that we can, we can do this. I think it's both through receiving and rejecting we receive God's design. We affirm biblical sexuality. We affirm biblical marriage between one man, one woman for life. We honor, we celebrate, we revel in the glory of God where Jesus gets the glory between a one man, one woman marriage relationship. One of the highlights of what I get to do is officiating weddings and seeing a man and a bride covenant together before God saying, me and you until Jesus calls us home. Because what's happening is that there's an even greater gospel reality that's taking place. They're pointing to a cosmic story that is centered on the person and work of Jesus. Significant. So yes, we receive and we celebrate that. But I think it also means we reject. We reject any other definition that stands itself up against God and what he has revealed in his word. We reject the culture's changing opinion of what they think sexuality in marriage should look like. We reject that and say, no, that's not God's design. Practically, y'all, this means that if you're watching a TV show or a movie and the plot line is leading you to celebrate and affirm adultery, you turn it off. If you see that marriage is being mocked or scoffed at, you turn it off. We cannot revel and celebrate in a culture that is trying to make fun of or even make funny what God has said is wrong. As followers of Jesus, we stand with conviction and yet with compassion. We, we stand firm on the word of God and so we receive what God has affirmed and we reject what God has rejected. And this is where we stand and we can do no other doesn't mean we're jerks. It doesn't mean we're angry. doesn't mean that we're mean-spirited. But it means that we're even willing to stand against being on the wrong side of history because we're on the right side of eternity. We're standing firm where Jesus stood firm. And we cry out to the culture, that's not God's design. And it's going to bring destruction, turn and trust in Jesus and go his path. It always leads to flourishing. It's the way God designed it to be. You see, marriage is bigger than just a man in a cheap rented tuxedo standing at an altar. It is pointing to a savior who is a bridegroom with a Galilean accent in which he promises one day he's coming forth and he will call forth his bride. And a wedding will commence. We will be one with Christ and we will be with him forever. And so until that great day, when we are united with Christ forever, right here, right now, in our temporary earthly marriages, we put Jesus right in the center. And when Jesus is the center of your marriage, God gets.